Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. The hard work and the diligence, amen, that you gave in any way toward that. Proverbs chapter 22 this morning, and we're going to look at verse number 6. We are in our Mythbuster series. Uh, we are in our Mythbuster series. This morning we are, cons- we are considering the phrase, a godly home guarantees godly kids. We're considering that phrase this morning, a godly home guarantees godly kids kids we are still at we're having service tonight amen if you want to come back please do so if you're leaving for vacation i understand amen we'll see you on the next time around amen but nevertheless we are having service this evening amen we're thankful this morning also we're coming up on memorial day and we're memorializing and remembering all of those who have been involved in the military that have fallen amen that are no longer with us and we appreciate amen their efforts and their work amen that they did in their time upon this earth in order to allow us to come together as we are this morning be able to worship and teach and preach amen the word of god pre-adventure there'll probably be a day that this will even be a rarity within the united states but while it's here i'm going to take advantage of it aren't you amen to worship the lord and our savior and we're thankful for those who have made that possible help make that possible proverbs 22 and verse number six very familiar a verse of scripture perhaps to some the bible says train up a child in the way he should go and when he is old he will not depart from him train up a child in the way he should go and when he is old he will not depart from it again we are considering the phrase this morning a godly home guarantees godly kids hallelujah if you can help me pray today father i love you i appreciate you today god for your loving kindness and your tender mercy i pray oh lord today god that you would anoint our minds and our hearts god as we would look into the word of the lord this morning god concerning this phrase god that it's lord jesus correctness or incorrectness lord jesus as we'll come lord god to a conclusion today concerning it i pray oh lord touch each and every individual unable to be here but those that are here today i pray lord you would instill something in their life through your word and we'll thank you and love you for it. in the lovely name of jesus christ i pray amen amen everybody say amen amen, amen. good to have our guests with us this morning good to have dana with us today amen and those that we've heard lord we're glad to have Amen, Doreen's. Amen, yes. With us this morning. This, I know you've been here this before, but we like to see you back. Amen. We're glad to have you back. So glad that you're here. Amen. Amen. You may be seated this morning. The lovely name of the Lord. In consideration of this phrase, I think it's important, and I'm not going to get bogged down in the details, but it's important this morning uh, to understand that verb there, guarantee godly home guarantees godly kids because that verb is so strong the word guarantee is so strong if we were to consider a few other synonyms for guarantee it might even show a little bit more light upon that phrase alone because synonyms synonyms to the word guarantee are also promises or affirms or assures makes certain secures or warrants 
In other words, the phrase then would be a godly home promises godly kids. Or a godly home makes certain godly kids. Or a godly home warrants godly kids. Meaning then in that phrase alone, there's something that is implied. And what is implied is this, is that a godly home automatically equals godly kids with no exceptions or possible upsets or upheavals. That's, if, this, if this is what you start with, then that is the product that you're going to get. That's what that phrase implies to us when we say a godly home guarantees godly kids. And there's another phrase that we can derive from that one. It's kind of the unspoken. If godly homes guarantee godly kids, the other phrase that might be able to be derived from that through deduction of thinking is this. An ungodly home then would guarantee ungodly kids. Amen. And so what this means is that if there are found ungodly kids, if there's ungodly kids that, that come result in life, then everybody's mind, according to the phrase, there's our subject matter, according to the subject matter today, if there are ungodly kids that are found, amen, then what has to be decided is then, then they must have come from ungodly homes. That's the way that the phrase relates to us. If there's ungodly kids, they must have come from ungodly homes. If you find godly kids, then they must have come from godly homes. As a matter of fact, regardless regardless of maybe the effort that the parents have had, amen, to rear them otherwise sometimes, and maybe in a good, godly environment, amen, we understand, though, that sometimes kids just don't turn out the way that they were meant to be raised. Right? Uh, we come to find out that you could do everything within your power, within your being, to teach you, because I've heard parents say this. I didn't teach them like that. You ever heard someone say that? Amen. And so there's already a debunking of this phrase that a godly home guarantees godly kids because there's some of us even sitting among here this morning that said, I didn't teach them that way. I didn't instruct them that way. And though they had a, their own choice, you provided a godly environment in the home for your children, but something else came as a result of, of all of that teaching and all of that that, that struggle and that setting down, looking eye to eye, amen, the hours of, of discipline that you invested, even in all of that, it can go sideways. It can go and the outcome can be quite different than what had happened, amen. And so, though, whenever we accept such a phrase as, as our title today, amen, that has different impacts. If we're going to accept the phrase that a godly home guarantees godly kids, it has different impacts. And this is what happens. Parents that have come to the end of rearing their children and it seems like in their adulthood they have proven to be godly kids, parents that have godly kids and they ordered a godly home, if we just accept a godly home guarantees godly kids, what this may tend to is for them parents to have a little sense of pride about themselves, about how good of a job they did for raising little Johnny. And raising little Susie, amen, they might even hurt themselves trying to pat their own back about how well they did providing, amen, such a godly environment for their kids that they would turn out being godly, amen. Failure wasn't even an option. We were just so good at parenting. I mean, we had this thing down and our kids turned out just the way that we intended on them to be if we accept this phrase, 
Amen. But then there are those other homes, good Christian homes with different results, and they, they practice, if you will, similar if not the same disciplines that the other family practice, taught the same things that the other family taught, took the kids to church like the other family took them to church, yet the outcome, it seems, of the children is quite different. They're walking an ungodly path, walking absolutely, absolutely diametric to the way that they were taught and the way they were instructed. And so if we accept this phrase that godly homes guarantee godly kids, then for these parents, for these parents, they wrestle with guilt and shame. Mm -hmm. They wrestle with guilt and shame because the only way that there's going to be a godly kid is if it had a godly home. And so if they turned out ungodly, then we must have not done our job. We must have not cultivated an environment of godliness well enough so they're, they're walking around with guilt and shame about what they could have done more, what they could have done differently. Some parents are held hostage, held hostage by the outcome of their kids and feel as though they failed. Amen. I would dare to say there's probably even some of us among here that's had some of this happen and had feelings initially of failure, of guilt and shame. Amen. Because they weren't the way that we taught them, weren't the way that we raised them. Amen. And if it had been, if we'd just done a little bit more, put in a little bit more effort, this would not have happened. That's what happens when you sell into the idea that a godly home without exceptions will guarantee godly kids. Amen. Now, just before someone jumps off the boat here this morning and says, well then, Pastor, that's great. I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm not going to endorse rearing my kids any direction. I'm just going to let them go with the wind because it doesn't matter if you do. It doesn't matter if you don't. We'll just raise them any old way because they're going to have the ultimate decision when the say is all done. They'll choose their life. So why don't we just, just not even endorse any? Now, don't jump off the boat here this morning. Don't jump off the boat here this morning saying you're telling me that you can have a godly home and still have ungodly kids as an outcome? Yes. Are you telling me you can have an ungodly home and still have godly kids? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Both ways. Absolutely. Amen. Our homes, our homes, our instruction in our homes may not guarantee the outcome of our kids, but at least to some measure it will influence. Everyone say influence. It will influence our children. It's not a fail-safe. It's, it's not like a hands-down win, but at least you've provided an influence, a bend for them in their life. With this subject matter and other subject matters, but with this subject matter this morning, there are no guarantees. Protect as much as you want. Safeguard as much as you want. Should we do this? Yes, we should. But there are no guarantees that whenever they walk out of your house, amen, that they're always going to be as you wanted them to be in your home. There are no guarantees. Amen. Amen. And so what I'm saying today, neither though are we without some means to lessen the risk factors, though, by what we teach and what we implement in the home. Amen? Uh, I mean, guardrails can't guarantee that it'll keep a vehicle on the road. But they may lessen the risk factor of them veering off the road. There's no guarantees, but there's a lessening, if you will, of the risk. Amen? 
And so uh, the whole idea is you can't guarantee it, but you might be able to help it. Amen. So I, I want to share uh, then with us this morning, and many of us are parents and grandparents today, amen, that we, we don't need to solely take the credit if our kids turn out and our grandkids turn out godly. Uh-huh. Because the reality tells me this, somewhere in the future they may just disappoint you for turning in another direction. And if we're willing to take the credit when things go well, will we be willing to take it when things go bad? Amen. Because godly homes don't necessarily guarantee godly kids. The way Proverbs 22 and verse 6 has been interpreted is that if, if we train, I should say for the most part popularly interpreted, is that if we train our children the way they should go when they're older and mature, they'll will not, all inclusive, no exceptions, they will not depart from the training or depart from the way. Amen. What we've done, we've went to the book of Proverbs, but we've interpreted and approached it as the book of promises. Which there's a distinction. There's a difference. I read to you from the book of Proverbs, not the book of promises. All right? There's a distinguishable difference between a proverb and a promise. Proverbs are not guaranteed. Promises are. Proverbs provide some guidelines. Proverbs, they provide some observations, particularly by the writer here, that generally work, that normally happen, that normally take place, that whenever this, whenever you do this, this is normally the outcome. That is how Proverbs is ordered. But even with some of the best of rules and regulations, there are exceptions. Amen. And in this matter, due to the uncertainty of our lives, due to the unpredictable manner of human nature, especially human nature that's born into sin, our behaviors are unpredictable. Fallen man is unpredictable. And as a result of that, exceptions are possible. Proverbs, the general rule is this. If there is a child in a godly home, through constant observation, for the most part, it rears godly children. But that's not to say there's never an exception. It's not giving us a promise. It's giving us a general rule. We can stand here today and say, for the most part, every airplane that goes through the sky meets its destination. Now, I can't guarantee you every plane that enters the sky meets its destination. I could even say the majority. I could say you could leave here today and go home, won't have an accident. That would be maybe observed naturally, generally, that's the case. But you might go home today and have an accident. Well, a preacher told me this wouldn't happen. Well, normally and generally it wouldn't, but it's not to say, it's not a guaranteed promise. It's not to say that it could. It could you understand what I'm saying today? And so whenever we talk about life normally and generally through observation, godly homes produce godly kids, but not always. Not always. Matter of fact, we have enough people's lives in Scripture if we wanted to start from the beginning and end to the end and begin studying where there were godly homes and the outcome of some kids may have been godly, others ungodly. 
We could study other people's lives who had ungodly homes. And yet the same outcomes took place. Some were ungodly and some were godly. One, for instance, today would be a man by the name of Jonadab. He's spoken of in Jeremiah chapter 35. Amen. Jeremiah is a prophet at this time, and he brings in the sons of Jonadab, or the Rechabites, as the Bible calls them. He brings in the sons of Jonadab and brings them to the temple. And whenever he brings them to the temple, he sits what the Bible calls or portrays as wine before them, and he asks of them to partake of this wine that the prophet Jeremiah set before them in the temple. And as it goes, the Bible says that as these boys are sitting there, they basically tell Jeremiah and those that are around them in the temple here, we will not drink the wine. We will not do it. And they said the reason why we will not do this is because our ancestor Jonadab forbade and commanded us not to drink wine, not to build houses, not to plant fields or seed, but to be dwellers in tents. Now, there's something interesting about this today, folks. Jonadab, from this point of time, Jonadab lived about 300 years prior to this being mentioned in Jeremiah. So when Jonadab instructed and commanded and did all these things to his kids, this is 300 years removed from that time, but these boys, these sons, are still wishing to hold true to the commandment and the teaching of their father. No wine, no, no vineyards, no field or seed, no houses. We're just going to live in tents. Although prophet Jeremiah was putting this before them, the prophets put this before them. They said, no, we've had some teaching back yonder that's influenced our lives, could I say enough, that no then is still no now. Amen. As a matter of fact, they're sitting in the house of God at this table. No, we've had some teaching in our home that what was appropriate then is appropriate now and what was not appropriate then is still not appropriate. They even said, it's not just for us, but they said, listen, they said, our wives are not going to do this. Our sons are not going to do this. In verse 8, they said, our daughters are not going to do this because we have our great father 300 years back, Jonadab, that commanded us accordingly. Look at what the Bible says in Jeremiah 35 and verse number 18. The Bible says in Jeremiah said unto the house of the Rechabites, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, because ye have obeyed the commandment of Jonadab, their ancestor, that long removed your father, and kept all his precepts and done according to all that he hath commanded you. Therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab the son of Rechab, shall not want a man to stand before me forever. Forever. Amen. He said there's a blessing coming then upon Jonadab and his legacy because they're keeping with what was commanded them by their father. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, so I'm just talking about showing you in Scripture where a godly home produced 
godly kids. All right, we see it in Scripture right here. As a matter of fact, as late as 1832, there was a traveler in the Judea area, south of Judea, who met a man who claimed to be a Rechabite, and he said that Jeremiah 35 that I read to you just a little bit of, he said that that was still true for he and his family and that they still kept the precepts of Jonadab, which was now at that point in time 3,000 years old. Amen. And so they were still keeping that till their day. Man, a godly home had produced godly kids. Didn't guarantee it, but it had influence, impact, and it did produce it because of relationship that they had had with their father, his teaching, his training, amen, his tutelage in their life. That's great. But it doesn't always go that way. A prime example of the exceptions is a man by the name of Samuel. Samuel is a judge. Samuel is called a seer, the first prophet, really, of the Old Testament Scripture. Amen. He spent his days as a youth in the temple. He was instructed by Eli. He knew he was around the presence of God. His mother had dedicated him to the house of God. He was a miracle, just not just because he was born in his mother's womb, but because she was barren. He was a miracle child in the house of the Lord. And the Bible states, if I can turn there, and I want to read you the record of Samuel, amen, whenever he's coming to the ending of his life, in 1 Samuel chapter number 12, and I'm going to read here out of the, the, the Living Bible, but in 1 Samuel chapter number 12, verses 1 through 5, this is Samuel here talking about his life toward the end of his life. Now look how reputable of a character that he is. The Bible says, Then Samuel in the Living Bible addressed the people again. He said, Look, he said, I have done as you asked. I have given you a king. I have selected him ahead of my own sons. Now I stand here, an old gray-haired man who has been in public service from the time he was a lad. Now tell me as I stand before the Lord and before his anointed king, whose ox or donkey have I stolen? Have I ever defrauded you? Have I ever oppressed you? Have I ever taken a bribe? Tell me, and I will make right whatever I have done wrong. No, they replied. You have never defrauded or oppressed us in any way. You have never taken even one single bribe. The Lord and his anointed king are my witness. Samuel declared that you can never accuse me of robbing you. Yes, it is true, they replied. In other words, we're talking about a godly man. We're talking about a man that was very judicial in the affairs of God's people. He's a seer. He's a prophet. He's very, very, very godly man. A godly home, no doubt. Uh, anybody living in his home was going to be uh, uh, showed the things of God and they were going to be related to the presence of God yet the Bible tells us concerning Samuel's two sons Joel and Abiah that these two boys of Samuel a prophet, a judge sinned before God going after dishonest gain and perverted justice the Bible says in 1 Samuel 8 verses 2 through 6 concerning these boys now the name of his firstborn Samuel's firstborn was Joel and the name of his second Abiah and they were judges and Beersheba verse number 3 and his sons walked not in whose ways? Samuel's ways oh but he's godly he's a man of God he preaches the word he points the finger of judgment but his own children 
in spite of their upbringing, in spite of their environment, in spite of their godly father, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside, the Bible says, after lucre and took bribes and perverted judgment. Now look at verse number five, or four here, go on to four, I'm sorry. Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel unto Ramah. So the elders are gathered together with Samuel, and the elders said unto Samuel, Behold, thou art old, and look, the elders, I mean, this isn't something hidden here. This is not something unknown, the public understands that these boys are walking differently from daddy the elders come and say Samuel your sons walk not in thy ways now make us a king to judge us like all the other nations verse number five and the thing displeased Samuel when they said give us a king to judge us there's something I want you to notice right here what displeased Samuel more than anything was that the nation of Israel wanted a king to judge them because God at that point in time was their king it does not say what, what, what displeased him was not that his sons walked ungodly, that his sons did not walk after him. What kind of parent is he? I think Samuel understood something. I'm sure he was disappointed, as any of us would be. I'm sure he's disappointed, but he understood. I did everything I could do. Hear me, parents, grandparents. I did everything I could do. I, I, I lived a life before them. I had them around the tabernacle and the temple. I taught them. I instruct them. I raised them. But I also know that doesn't secure or guarantee the outcome. And I'm pleased over Israel doing all this. But these kids, yeah, that disappoints me. But I'm not going to carry an undue amount of guilt and shame on my own shoulders when I know that I did everything I could do. Amen. I hope I'm helping somebody today. I don't know if not, maybe today, maybe for in the future. And so what we have are two examples right here of respectable families, Samuel, Jonadab, but one ends in respect, the other, different outcome, disrespect. A godly home did not guarantee godly kids. Amen. When you go back to Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 6, and you look at the word there, train, the word train, it's an imperative statement to us, to whoever's reading, an imperative statement to train. There are four other occurrences of the word train in the Old Testament scripture that come from the same Hebrew word. And in all the other instances that the word train is used, looking at the context in which they're used in the Old Testament, they're used whenever it speaks about dedicating or initiating the use of buildings, and that's usually accompanied then by a great celebration. In other words, whenever the word was trained in other instances, they were used as far as for like dedicating an altar, dedicating a building, uh, dedicating some type of inanimate object, and then trained for that purpose. But here's the thing, folks. We're talking about inanimate objects, things that don't live, move, and all this stuff, and have choice, all right? That's whenever the word train was used in other instances. And so it doesn't necessarily have the exact same meaning as whenever we're talking about animate objects that breathe and have wills and choices, what do you mean? Well, let's take this for instance, a real life, a real life example. The word run as a verb. We can say, we can say that the faucet runs, inanimate object. 
Then we can say the boy runs. Now there's a little flavor of meaning in both of those because in one you're addressing something that doesn't live and have a choice or will, but another something that does have a choice and a will. So it alters the meaning a little bit. You don't, whenever I say the faucet runs, you're not picturing some delta faucet hiking and going down the road. Is that true? <laughs> but whenever I say a boy does that, you're not looking at him dripping, you know. You're looking at, you understand what I'm saying? The meaning is subjected then to whether it's an inanimate or animate, where it's alive or whether it's not alive. And so when we're talking about training something that's dedicated, initiation of a use of a building, what are we talking about, though, when we're talking about a person? When we're talking about a person? When we talk about the word train, then in Proverbs, it's better to see this word as having a specific reference to an inauguration process that has some type of status or responsibility that is attached to it. Uh, 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 And can I say that in our lives, we have various initiation processes. We celebrate when they smile, kids. We celebrate when they get their first two. I'm talking about initiation inaugural processes here. We, whenever they learn to crawl, Whenever they learn to walk, whenever their first day, we have all these different milestones in the life of the individual that we celebrate their initiation processes, their inaugural processes. Why? They've reached a new status in life. And with the status comes a responsibility. Uh huh. Whenever they take the spoon for the first time and dig it down in whatever they have and we're able to put that in their mouth, a new status has happened, a new responsibility. I don't have to take the spoon and shove it in their mouth anymore. Woo! I've been trying all along, putting my hand over theirs, you know, to them. They find they got it. Maybe they get in their nose sometimes, but that's all right. It's still orifice in the body. You'll get there. And so, (laughs) so there's a new status, and so there's new responsibility. And so that training, that training is, is all along the way. You are constantly trying to get them to the next level and new responsibility in their life. Amen. So we're training up a child. And here's the thing. When we think of child, we think, oh, there's a little gooey hole. Huh? <laughs> but the word child here in the scripture, he has various meanings because the same word is used of people of various ages. The word child is used of infancy for a child yet born in Judges 13. This word is used of a child that was just born in 1 Samuel 4. It's used of an infant that's not weaned from its mother yet in 1 Samuel 1. It's used of a three-month-old baby in Exodus 2. Same word. It's used even when we speak of Joseph. Joseph is somewhere around the age of 17. In his culture, already a man. But he's called, same word, child. When he's 30 years old, Joseph, surely beyond childhood, he's still called a child. In Genesis 41. Because the word child doesn't so much in the Hebrew have to do with age as it does status and responsibility. There's oftentimes even used as soldiers. Might not be a private anymore, but they're not a commanding officer either. And it was spoken to them concerning their status in life, their status in life, not their age. And so we find, we find as Christian parents, it's not just what I do at infancy, 
but it's what I do at each of those status changes in life that I'm training, teaching, educating, celebrating. Uh-huh. All along the journey. Not just whenever they're a blabbering mouth over there, but when they can articulate and have language and they can talk back to you. We're all along in this celebration of status, these initiation processes, these milestones that they reach in life all through that journey of life. It's not that they reach teenage years and then my job's done. If anything, in some respects, it may have just really started. From what I hear, I was a teenager once, so I, you know, everything I speak is not because it's already happened in my family, but because I was part of it in my own family. You understand? Some people say, well, you, I've heard people say, you can't, you can't say anything about having teenagers. You don't have any. No, but I've been one. And I had parents. Amen? <laughs> Hallelujah. Sometimes it's not always looking forward, but it's looking backward, you know. Amen. And so we, we consider all of this, we consider all this, but it's not just, not just age, but it's status. And so we see then that a child in Proverbs, child, the word child used in Proverbs tends to illustrate that there is someone there that's in need of wisdom. Especially when the word child is used in throughout the book of Proverbs. All the time you see this mentioning of child and even through the rod of correction that's spoken of more than any place else in the book of Proverbs concerning that what it's really trying to illustrate to you and I is that there's someone there whatever their age may be that's in need of some wisdom amen and they might have this little naive bend in their life amen but that can be molded and that can be instructed you know we all have our own tendencies some people are more outgoing some are introverts all right some speak very freely others don't some have talent with music, others don't. We all have these different talents and abilities, so, but the thing is, is taking whatever it is and trying to steer that in a positive direction for the kingdom of God. Amen. You, you know, early stages, children getting, you know, coming up in school and talking when they shouldn't talk is a big no-no. <laughs> you get in trouble for that. Notes get sent home in today's world for sure whenever you're talking and you shouldn't be talking. Well, what are we going to do about this? This is a problem. It's not a problem. You take the way that they're bent and you focus it in the positive direction. Because let me tell you, there's going to come times later in society, you're going to want somebody that should talk when nobody else is talking. Amen? All right. So anyway, so, so, so it can be instructed. It can be, it can be molded. Scripture teaches us, through the Lord Jesus Christ, that children develop basically in four areas Luke chapter number 2 and verse 52 the Bible states this Luke 2 52 and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man Jesus grew in wisdom everyone say wisdom, wisdom. mentally stature physically favor with God spiritually and with man, socially. The dynamic is this. They don't always necessarily increase all at the same time. Uh-huh. You may have someone that went physically. You don't really have a whole lot of control over that, I guess, unless you provide food and such of that manner. And someone says, I provide my share of food. 
I'll show you the bills back in the days when the kids lived at home. <laughs> but I pray, you know, you may supply physically, but they might be lagging behind spiritually. Mm-hmm. You might have some spiritual giant. <laughs> Bless their heart, they just don't even have common sense. You understand what I'm saying? And so we got these different avenues. Amen. But there, there are times in the life of a human being that certain of these aspects may be concentrated on more than others. Amen. And there are various, might I say, initiation, inaugural processes along the way where their status and their responsibility, amen, are bestowed upon all offspring. I remember when I was taught to mow the lawn. That's a new status. That's a new responsibility. I had to be trained or taught in that area for that status, for that responsibility. Amen. And so as we change, our status should be changing. Uh-huh. Our responsibilities should be changing. They should increase with our age. Boy, I wish I had a house full of teenagers and parents in us. They should increase with age. Sitting on the couch at 22, well, if you had on backwards, playing video games, when your mom and dad's out mowing the lawn, something wrong. Amen. I don't know what just came by here, but I felt it. Amen. He says, train up a child. So we've already, we've already gathered some of this. In the way he should go, or according to his way. According to what? According to what his status is. Mm-hmm. According to what his status is. Amen. Uh, training up in, in according what would be demanded of his position, what would be demanded of his status, all right? We demand certain things, of, uh, or I hope we do, of older children than we do younger children. Why? Because it's all per, not necessarily their age, but their status, their status, where they are at in life. And so this being said, amen, outside of the parent-child relationship, there have been many a person that's been trained for a status, let's say, of a soldier of a particular rank, but that didn't keep them from going AWOL. What are you saying? Again, a godly home doesn't necessarily guarantee. Not just within the home, but in any rank of society, all the training and teaching you do for a person of a particular status that should be demanded of them, they can still. How's that happen? I tell you how it happens. We have people in politics. You just wait till the election time comes. You're going to see the dirt come out. What is that? Man, that's just a proof that it just doesn't always work. It might increase the likelihood, but you're still dealing with something that's alive that has a will and power of choice to either accept or deny. But the question is, did you teach? Amen? Did you teach? Training doesn't always guarantee actions. What training does provide the know-how. Training provides the know-how. Mm-hmm. And so if they'll take what they've learned and they apply it, boom, the magic happens. And let me say this, along the idea of that, it's not then we just sit back and say, you know, 
Well, I hope they turn out all right, you know. <laughs> Honey, we brought them into this world. I did my part, you did yours. And, you know, I just hope it all turns good, you know. God bless them, let's pray about it. <laughs> Hallelujah, Jesus. Steer them the right way, Lord. <laughs> now, hopefully not being reserved to that end because this is what I believe, and I'm just telling you this. This is what I believe. That if you've provided the environment of a godly home, even if it does turn out negatively, even if it does turn out that they turn out ungodly, let me tell you, when you've given and provided the know-how, let me tell you commonly what I've found. This is just from observation of pastor, okay? Commonly of what I've found, when there has been that intact, although they might not turn out like that, I found some of those same kids, they'll just resort to the life of being a sinner, listen to me, rather than trying to resort to a life of a different doctrine and untruth. Mm -hmm. Why? Because of what had been taught in the home. Rather than denying what was taught as far as a false truth, if that is even a possibility, false truth. <laughs> Rather than denying that, they'll just be lost from the truth. I've seen it many times. Been to many pastors' homes who kids were not the godly sort. But nor are they embracing something that's diametric to what they've been taught because they had been taught. They know they're lost. They know they're a sinner. If they ever go back anywhere concerning God, they're going to go back to what they were taught. Amen. Why do they do that? because they were trained up as a child at the different statuses and responsibilities, how one with their status should and ought to live. They know how one with that status should function, should live. Amen. And so it almost goes without saying this morning, I'm trying to run here, I'm really going, we'll get you there, your barbecue's coming up tomorrow, we'll get you there. It almost goes without saying today that the time to educate our kids needs to start when they are young, of course and tender and impressionable. For one thing, just think of nature for a moment. That's the reason why people drive stakes in the ground, tie cords to a young sapling tree. Uh-huh. They're attempting, they're attempting to ensure the straightness of that tree whenever it is grown. Because naturally it may have a bend otherwise, but they put those cords on it drive those stakes in the ground in its youthfulness to try to ensure the straightness of the tree. Now, here's the thing. Doing that may not eliminate totally the bend that the sapling had, but it may very well take some of the edge off. The outcome may have been totally different if they weren't there altogether. Amen. And so attempting to weigh in either instance, child or tree, <laughs> is to make the job more difficult and possibly less effective if we wait. You out here, one of, the, one of these trees over here, it's a few feet in diameter, and say, you know what? That thing's been kind of cockeyed for a long time. I think we're going to get us a good old rope and some stakes, and we're going to straighten that out. Good luck. 
Nothing short of a miracle is going to do that. That's the reason really the only hope for the godly is not you and me, but God, because it takes a miracle to do that. Amen? They say that a child is composed of appetites and a moral sense. Psychologists, psychiatrists say that the appetites get a two to three year start before moral sense. And so that you got to be very swift in training or you won't get the moral sense to overtake the appetite because it had a head start. Amen. So you've really got to condition that. Amen. Again, there are no guarantees, but things definitely won't hurt the outcome if we try. The imperative was called to train. Important. Is everybody doing okay? They don't guarantee, but the imperative was, was called to train. It did not say to teach because there's a distinction here as well between teaching and training. There cannot be training without teaching, but there may be teaching without training. Teaching may simply be more of a telling of the knowledge, but training is a showing or sharing of the knowledge to the degree that a part of the trainer is broken off and given to the student. Is someone hearing what I'm saying right now? In other words... In teaching, there may be no great relationship forged between student and teacher. But when you have a trainer and they're down in the trench with you and there's a showing hands on hands, there is a relationship forged between the trainer and the student. There is more than just knowledge being imparted out the mouth. There is a relationship. There's a showing. There's a sharing. There's a breaking off a piece of who they are and passing it down to the one that they are educating. And so there's a difference. He said, train them up. Don't just speak it with your lips. Get down in the trenches with them. Amen? Get down in the trenches with them. Is this important? Bet your bottom dollar it's important. Eli, priest, godly home, godly family. Kind of getting less godly as the years went on for old Eli. The Bible spoke of his two sons, that they were sons of Belial. The Bible says they knew not the Lord. Now you tell me, how in the world is it possible to be the son of the high priest and not know God? Hmm? How in the world is this possible? Yet the Bible says concerning Eli, that he basically honored his boys above God. He never restrained them. So he's in the temple and tabernacle, wherever he is, he's constantly teaching any and all people, his sons included. But I think where the breakdown was, he didn't train them. You hear me? He didn't train them. It was just another lecture, just another speech that dad's given in the tabernacle, or in the tabernacle, amen, or, the, or along the streets. What they needed was for somebody to train them. Not just talk about it, but get down in the trench with them and said, boys, this is how we sacrifice. Boys, this is how we break off a piece of himself and put it in them. That might not have guaranteed the outcome, but I guarantee you it would have helped the outcome.
Because a relationship between son and father would have been forged and the training of what they should have been. Look at the scripture Malachi 4 and verse number 4. Everybody's doing well. I'm going over, okay? Just letting you know right now. Overtime, yay. Malachi 4 and verse number 4. The Bible says, remember ye, the last book of the Bible. Here are some of the resting words in the last verses of the last book of the Old Testament. Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horb for all Israel with the statutes and the judgments. Behold, I will send you, Elijah the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Verse 6, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to their children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. The last few verses of the last book of the Old Testament, the prophet states, look what he says now, remember the statutes and the judgments that Moses spoke about. Remember the statutes. Remember those teachings. But after he says that, he turns the attention toward the need of reconciliation within the home. Mm -hmm. Fathers turning toward sons, sons turning toward fathers. He said, remember ye the statutes and the judgments. But in order for this remembrance to truly happen, there's going to have to become a reconciliation in the home. Some relationships, some training, some breaking off pieces of parents. Amen. And it being invested into the lives of their children. Because without a reconciliation in the home, judgment was going to come or was apt to come if they didn't have the training. The reconciliation, the breaking off. If it was just teaching, teaching is teaching. But we need something happening in the home. Some training in the home. And so God's last words there in the Old Testament concerning the home. Then we open up our Bibles to the New Testament. And we find in Luke 1 that when John the Baptist is born, the prophecy says that he will go before him in the spirit and in the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. So at the close of the Old Testament, the emphasis is on reconciliation within the home. At the opening of the New Testament, it opens with the same, the emphasis being on the reconciliation of the home. Why? Because God believes it is important to have reconciliation and restoration in the home. Why? Because the home, everybody say the home. The home is the best training room. The home is the best training room. Other voices in society, they may be teachers, but the home should be the place of the trainer. Uh-huh. The home should be the place of the trainer. The Bible says in Ephesians 6 and 4, I won't hold you much longer, but long enough. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse number 4, and ye fathers provoke not your children to wrath. We could talk about that for a while, but we're not going there right now this morning. But bring them up in the nurture an admonition of the Lord. Now, nurture and admonition are two different things. There's, I know I've been pointing out some distinctions today, but there's a distinction between admonition and nurture. Admonition basically means teaching. Nurture basically means training. Two very remote things. He says they're going to bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. How, how, how? Is it possible? More than just teaching, but training. God knew. God, God knows the difference. In Genesis 18, 
whenever he was setting out to go to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone, he passed by Abraham. He, he made mention of the question, should I show Abraham the thing that I'm about to do? And then he begins to talk about Abraham a little bit. He says, you know what? I think I am going to swing by Abraham and tell him about what I'm about to do. Because Abraham, whenever I consider Abraham and the destruction of Lot, and I think of Abraham, I know that Abraham, look what the scripture says in Genesis 18. We don't have it before you, but in Genesis 18 it can be found. He says, Abraham will command, everybody say teach, will command his children and his household after, this is important, after him. Mm -hmm. Abraham will teach, he'll verbalize, he'll give all the precepts, he'll talk about it, blah, 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 blah. And thou shouldn't do this, you should do this, da, da, da. He'll teach his children and all these precepts and stuff after him. What happened right there? We went from teaching to training. It wasn't just like, this is the way it should be. It's like, follow me. I'll show you how it's done. It went from just a verbalization to a sharing to where Abraham's breaking a little of Abraham off of him and said, there you go, Isaac. Uh-huh, Jacob. Those down through the ages. Here you go, here's a piece of me. Because God said, you know what? I think I will talk to him. Because he's not just a teacher in his family. He's not just a teacher in his family. He's a trainer in his family. <laughs> Amen. I know none of it will guarantee the outcome, but it sure isn't going to hinder. Hinder the outcome. Don't you ever think for a moment, you know what? Man, we go to church three times a week and we do this. We try to bring little Johnny up. We make sure that he has a good Bible. He can read out all this. I tell you what, he's probably going to turn out a heathen. What good is all this, honey? Anything you did is not hindering the outcome. It's not hindering the outcome. Because the whole reality is this. Normally, children, kids, whoever they may be, they're never going to be kept from sins and crimes just because of rules. True? We got a lot of rules in this, in this, our government, local, city. Mm-hmm. Rules. You ever seen a rule broken? Yeah. Rules in and of themselves, regulations in and of themselves are not enough to keep somebody from betraying them. They don't have the power to do that. A rule does not have the power to do that. They don't have the power to transform or to keep a child in and of themselves. Are rules necessary? Yes, absolutely we must have. We must have some type of guideline. We must have some type of order. But it isn't rules that's going to do that. You know what does that sometimes more than anything? Please listen to me. It's not so much the rules, but it's the relationship with the ruler. Whew. That will greatly impact. That will greatly sway, if you will, the heart of one. Amen. A godly home guarantees godly kids. I wish I could stand up here and say that is absolutely right. But it's not doesn't always turn out that way. I think, it, I think it, personally, I think it's more favorable if you do, but it don't always turn out that way. 
And that isn't also to regulate anybody that's not been raised in a godly home an opportunity for a change. Because it don't always turn out that way. We have people that we could, you know, parade up here that were not, you know, brought up in people that I know in my own personal life, not brought up in godly homes. But the way that they order their lives today, you would have thought that they were brought up in the godliest of homes. How's that possible? Well, it wasn't because of stakes and cords put on them after adulthood. It's because God performed a miracle. God performed a miracle. Our tendency is toward ungodliness. Newsflash, y'all were born sinners, including me. Our tendency then is toward sin. So if we're going to need any help, it's not to be more ungodly. It's going to be to be more godly. You can stand with me this morning. Hallelujah. Well, glad you all stayed around and listened. I just comfort him within itself. <clears throat> comforting within itself. Amen. You come back next week. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you and have a blessed day.